Hello, you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right, everyone, I know that uh, it's opportunity for us to, to connect with one another during service. Um, and now we're going to start a brand new series. And so uh, I want to thank so many of you who are part of our uh, Five Threshold series for the past couple of months. Just received a lot of um, feedback about how it was encouraging, challenging, all those, all those things. And so uh, thank you for, for being here with us. And now we're just going to have a three-week series talking about our series called Monsters, Fighting Enemies of Faith. Now, when I was younger, here, one, of the, one of the struggles I have, one of the things that makes me anxious, um, or has made me anxious at least in the past, is uh, the idea of, of not liking conflict. How many of you here don't like conflict? Okay, very good. How many of you are okay with conflict? Like you're okay with it. Okay, how many of you seek conflict out because you're like, I'm right, let's go, like let's just go. Okay, not, not, too, not too many people here, maybe one or two. So all, conflict in and of itself can be a good thing if it causes us to draw closer to one another, right? Like conflict can be good, but here's a sign, and I only did this or realized this um, years afterwards when I was a kid, to prove how much I did not like conflict. Uh, let me give an example. So when I was growing up, I remember I have an older brother who's 12 years older than me, um, and there's no kids in between, same parents, uh, and so there was, um, I just remember feeling that there was, you know, if, if there was any conflict in the house, whether it was mom and dad or brother or any, any sort of issue there with any of them, any conflict, I felt like I, I couldn't handle it. Even if it wasn't crazy, I just didn't like conflicts. So I would go in my room and I'll close my door and, you know, after a while, one of my parents might say, you know, what's, what's going on? And I'm like, well, I don't like conflict. This is going to affect me for the rest of my life. Anxiety-inducing. No, of course I didn't say that. I was like six. But the idea of recognizing, like, I just didn't like it. And I didn't realize until later, one of the ways that's manifested itself is um, when I was growing up, uh, I really enjoyed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and so when I would buy all the different, like, action figures. My favorite was Leonardo uh, because one, he was a leader. Two, he had blue. And three, he had swords. I'm like, how can there be any other choice? But, um, and if you like one of the other ones, like that's totally fine. As my old college roommate would say, everyone's entitled to their wrong opinion. And so, um, just kidding. So what I would do is I would buy all the action figures, all, all the characters. And you know who I wouldn't buy? Any of the bad guys. I only would buy the good guys. I would only buy the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Casey Jones or April or like they had like a little pizza shooter thing. I don't know, very, very fun. But I never would buy the bad guys. And this might be, you know, revisionist history, but as I look back, it's because it's like I never wanted there to be any conflict. I even wanted Leonardo to get along with everybody. And if you watch the movies, you know, Raphael's the spicy one, um, but still... I wanted them all to get along. So even in my play, even as a kid, I wanted to avoid good versus bad or any sort of conflict. I just wanted it all to be good. I just wanted everyone to be happy with everyone. And as I've grown up, I realized that is not exactly the world that we live in. And so acknowledging this fact that for me, 
The idea of fighting monsters or fighting an evil or fighting something like that is, is something that growing up I would avoid. If there's a monster in my life or a difficulty in my life, those of you who um, we've spent time together over the past few years, those of you may know or remember that I struggled with depression and being suicidal for four and a half, five years during my middle school and high school years, excuse me. And so that was a monster. And you know what? I did not know how to fight against that. I did not know how to come up against that. I did not know the tools, the resources, healthy ways to navigate that. And so as we are talking today about, in the next three, two, uh, two weeks after today, the next three weeks we're talking about monsters, fighting enemies of faith. Because, friends, if you, whether you follow Jesus or not, if you're on that journey and you're invited here, know that you are loved and cared for by the person who invited you here. Um, and we're so thankful that you would spend some time with us today. But you can acknowledge that we are not in a world where everyone just gets along. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we recognize that following Jesus doesn't mean that automatically everyone gets along. That there are real difficulties we experience. There are real enemies out there. And the bulk of our series will focus, honestly, on a lot of the enemies in here. The things that we struggle with, that if we don't fight up against... If we don't seek God's counsel through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and through the communication or excuse me, community with other believers, if we don't find hope, then we're going to think that we're living in a world where it's only good guys, and we won't be able to stand up when an enemy, when a monster shows up. So today, we're going to start looking at the idea. The first monster we're going to unpack today is the idea of anxiety. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask that you would join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person who is here with us in person and each person who is watching with us online and each person that might be listening online to the podcast later God, I pray that each and every person, whether that's their first time tuning in or joining us or they've been with us for years, Lord, I pray that they would know without a shadow of a doubt that you love them and that they would feel a moment where they know that they were here for that word or that song or that idea or that revelation through your scriptures. So God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that as we dive in, that I would decrease, that you would increase, they would speak in a personal, powerful impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for speaking to us. And thank you for helping us to know that when we face monsters, we are not facing them alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're talking about anxiety today, what I want to start off right off the bat um, is acknowledging that um, according to the, the, some of the figures, recent figures, Across the world, if you type in what is the world's, uh, how much of the world population experiences anxiety, and the number is 4%, so it's 240 million or so from the last figure I saw, 4% of the world's population experiences anxiety, and by that what I mean is like an anxiety, like a disorder, not like something that's diagnosed and something that you have to navigate through. However, that number jumps when it comes to the U.S., that, that number, instead of 4% for the world's population, out of that 240 million, 40 million of them are here within the United States. Therefore, the, the, the population, the percentage is 20% of American adults experience anxiety. So I haven't done a count of how many people are in here, but one in five of us experience this. 
So this is not something that we, we want to, to sweep under the rug. This is something that God speaks into. This is something that we want to navigate. But what I want to do um, kind of from the get-go for our sermon today is acknowledging that, and I, and I don't mean this frivolously, I, I felt a small degree of, of feeling anxious this week, recognizing I'm going to talk about a topic that I personally have not experienced to the degree that many of you have. And the last thing I would want to do is to diminish or to trivialize or to make it feel like what you're experiencing isn't real. Because when you're feeling those emotions and when it physiologically alters how you're feeling, that's very real. And the last thing I would want to do is say, you know what, just pray about it and get over it. Like that's the last thing I would want to do. And so I was trying to seek out other people. I've listened to some sermons about anxiety this week, I, um, which probably didn't help the anxiety. That's okay, though. Um, Listened to sermons about it, started reading a book through it, which we'll talk about in a moment. Try to seek wisdom from other pastors who have experienced this and how to present it. Because if it's about depression or suicide, I can share from my heart and from my story. With anxiety, I don't have that same ability to do so. So I want to acknowledge right off the bat that if you are experiencing that, if that's something that you have, and it's, it's something that's being diagnosed or something that, you've, that is an official struggle that you have, that know that we want to come alongside you and support you and can maybe point you in some direction of counselors if you don't have one already. Um, and, I, and I want to acknowledge, too, that we're not going to just focus on that idea of anxiety today. Because I want to talk about the way that we all feel, maybe not the, the raging fire of anxiety, but that simmering anxiety that's always just below the surface. So uh, Maurice Schweitzer gives a quotation that I want to share with you. It says, anxiety has largely been studied as a trait. For example, there are anxious people. Rather than a state, something that all of us experience for periods of time. And so we may have people we know, family members or friends or coworkers, neighbors, classmates, where we say, oh, they're, they're just kind of always anxious. They're anxious people. And some of us, our personality traits trend towards that. Different personality styles lend themselves towards kind of naturally feeling a little level or a great level of anxiety. But what we're not going to do is just say, okay, anxiety is something that those people struggle with. Or if you're one of them, anxiety is not just something that one per this person struggles with. A low level of anxiety of, in regards to it being a state, a, a period of time in which we experience anxiety is real to all of us. And in fact, it's probably rarely been more real on a worldwide scale than it has for the past 18 months. Anxiety about not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what's going to happen, fill in the gaps. So what I want to do is I want to um, give a, an adaptation from the psychological encyclopedia about the definition of what we're going to go with with anxiety. So anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. So one of the ways you know that you're experiencing anxiety, if you're nervous about something and you're just, you know, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of stressed about that. That's one thing. But if it starts to make your heart race a little bit faster, if it starts to mean that your mind starts spinning a little bit more, if it means that inside you just kind of have that, that weight inside your gut that is just sitting there like, oh, I just, oh man, I don't, I don't like this. If you're not sleeping as well, if you're not eating as well, if there's some physiological changes that occur, it's more than just I'm worried about something. It's a low level or a greater level of anxiety. And so the book that I'm referencing, and, and we're going to 
get some of the content of and some of the core ideas from today. It's called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. Um, and he'll be the first one to say it's unfortunate that his last name is what it is. But um, his, whole, his, uh, his website is stevecusswords.com. And so he's got a lot of words that he wrote. And they're really, really good. And I, and I don't mean to be trite, but I do know that you will remember that website because of that right now. So if you want to look into any more of the details, you can follow up on that. But Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs is the, is the title. Because it's acknowledging how we feel anxious and in which circumstances we do. And then recognizing that the people around us all have their own ways that they feel anxious. And when we're in a family, a team, a class, a, a, a staff, a neighborhood, whatever it may be, we will then start to pick up on other people's anxiety and we all have to figure out how to work through this together, how to navigate it together. So although we just looked at the, the psychological encyclopedia's um, kind of official definition, Steve Cuss gives a definition that has more of a spiritual bent that's going to point us to or rather set us up for uh, the majority of our sermon today. And that's this. He says, anxiety is whatever response happens right after you're not getting what you think you need. Anxiety is whatever response happens when you're not getting what you think you need. So let's unpack that for a moment because what does that look like? Some of us here, one of the things that we think we need in order for us to be okay, in order for us to, to feel valuable, is that we think we need to perform very well. We think we need to get the best grades. We need to be the top uh, person within our job. We need to be able to be the best uh, athlete, the best whatever it is. And so we think, I need to perform well in order to be loved. And so then if we don't perform well, then if we show up and there's someone who gets a better grade on us in our class, if there's someone who does better and exceeds expectations at work, if there's someone who takes our starting job or starting position on a team, all of a sudden that makes us feel like we're not okay, that we don't have value because we've placed our value inaccurately in our performance and how well we do at something. Therefore, when we don't get that, we feel like we're not okay. And we start to have a racing mind, a racing heart, uh, we feel anxious about it, and then it continues. Maybe that's not you. Maybe for some of you, the anxiety, and this is more for me personally, is, is pleasing people. Is in order for me to be okay, I need to feel like people around me are okay with me. And to be honest, it harkens back to when I was a kid and when there was conflict inside the home and I would close the door. I, this is not what my parents said. This is not uh, what my family um, taught me. But what I falsely, to be clear, falsely understood was that in order for me, in order for our family to be okay with one another, I have to be perfect. Like everyone doesn't argue with me because I'm, I'm so much younger. It's, and so it's like, Okay, I need to be the glue to hold this family together. And so if, if, if I'm perfect, that's one of mine, if I do everything perfectly, and if everyone around me is happy with me, then I have value, and then that means that everyone's going to be okay, and that means that it can all be like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with no bad guys and no monsters. So what does that do to a 10-year-old when parents argue and then they get separated and divorced? They, it, it, I have... I recognize what happened and why they got divorced, and there's no bitterness. They, they were both incredibly supportive, 
loving and have still been um, throughout that whole process and throughout my life. They've been, they've been great with one another, and so it's not been a, um, a contentious situation. And so more what I'm pointing at is how did that affect me? Because, again, I think I have to be perfect in order to have people approve of me. And so then when it doesn't work out, I'm constantly in search of that being perfect, having everyone be okay. In the book, Steve Cuss references the idea of um, when they go, when there's like dog races, he's from Australia, and so I'm listening to the audiobook, and everything he says sounds so much cooler than I could ever say it. Um, and so uh, the one thing that, this is totally a sidebar, but he, uh, in Australian, in the Australian uh, accent, when they say the word pastor, they don't have that er sound, so it's a pasta, and so I'm like, that sounds delicious. And so it's recognizing, he's like, you know, as a senior pasta, I'm like, yes. And so not really important to anything, really, to be honest, but that's okay. Um, but recognizing what he talks about is that in, uh, in um, Australia, there are dog races, right? And how, if you remember, how do dog races get going? It's not like they could just say, you know, come, and then all the dogs race around. No, they have that, that, that little fake bunny that kind of goes around the inside of the track, and it, it unleashes, and then the gates go up, and all the dogs are trying to chase that bunny all the way around, and it goes fast, and they chase, each other, they chase it, and it, it goes fine. He talked about how there were two times where there were specific issues. Um, one of the times is that the bunny, um, the bunny was going, and then all of a sudden it, it was going like really slowly, and so that defeated the purpose of the race because it's kind of more like a, like a trot. Um, the other time was that the bunny started for a little portion of the track and then completely stopped. And so they're chasing the bunny, and all of a sudden, oh, the bunny stopped. And they said, he talked about how all of a sudden they all just started like wagging their tails and like they're having a fun time. And the idea is, is that they're chasing after this thing that wasn't real. It wasn't a real bunny that would, you know, satiate their desire for food. It was, it was a fake bunny. It was a fake thing for them to pursue that in the end could not satisfy what they actually needed. So he uses the example of, for me, to, to, to start this conversation off, trying to be perfect is a fake, is a bunny that will never, I'll never reach and I'll never satiate my desire for identity to be, to be loved or to be well-liked. Being popular or, or not even popular because that's the wrong idea of it, but having, being pleasing for people or being able to not have people mad at me, that, as we all know, that will never be a desire that happened because no matter what you do, you will anger someone, especially, especially as a leader in the past 18 months. Every decision is the wrong decision for someone. And so we wrestle with that idea. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to, instead of just giving you some scripture and just saying, so here's what anxiety means, cope with it, right, or deal with it. That's not what I want to do. What I want to do is take a few moments to unpack a character of Bible, someone who is a, a real person in the Bible with real struggles, that if I'm going to be honest, I've written him off as just like a bad guy for a very long time. Like, oh, well, he's just bad. He just, you know, he's just, he's just a bad person. Like, that's all that there is to it. And so looking into it a little bit more this week with this idea of anxiety in my mind, it, it provided potentially a different perspective. And so we're going to be looking at King Saul um, at the beginning of his reign. And so we're going to be primarily in 1 Kings 22 will be kind of the, the, the main point of our story. But what I want to do is take a few moments to look back at his life what we know of it through the Holy Scripture, 
and look and see what it is that maybe has caused him to make decisions that we would look at now thousands of years later like, oh, what a bad guy. And yet if we were in the same place, if I was in the same place, is there a chance I would be making those same decisions as well? So I'm just going to start, 1 Samuel 22, I'm just going to start with verse uh, 6 here. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gebeah, with all his officials standing at his side. And the reason I'm stopping there, um, and the scriptures aren't going to be on the screen, so I'm, I'm not going verse by verse today. So in your Bibles, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. I should have mentioned that earlier. Excuse me. Um, and then also, if you have your phone with you, I will be in 1 Samuel 22. But one of the things I want to point your attention to is it very specifically mentions that while he was sitting under the tree, he had his spear in hand. And the spear becomes uh, a motif. A motif is something that consistently shows up inside of a work. Um, and it's a motif that comes, and this is not the first time we see it. The first time we see the motif of the spear in Saul's hand comes in 1 Samuel 18, when David had just slain Goliath. It's just incredible victory for the Israelites against the Philistines. And what ends up happening is that, you know, uh, Goliath dies and David is celebrated, and then David becomes someone who goes into um, Saul's court, that Saul calls him, and, and he ends up playing the harp for him. And so in 1 Samuel 18, there's a chance, or there's a moment where it says how an evil spirit comes upon uh, Saul, an evil spirit from the Lord, which is another topic that we need to unpack at some point, because that's an interesting thing for us to look at. But it talks about how there's a spear in Saul's hand, and it talks about how his goal is he wanted to pin David against the wall. He got so mad, he launched the spear. David narrowly escapes for his life. First Samuel 19, very similar story. They're in the courts again. An evil spirit comes again upon Saul, spear in hand, specifically mentions it, and then he launches it, tries to kill David a second time. The next chapter, 1 Samuel 20, David and then Saul's son, Jonathan, have built a, a, an incredible friendship. And through that friendship, Jonathan's trying to find out if Saul would let David back in because at this point, David's fleeing. He's afraid for his life. And Saul um, is talking to David and Jonathan's talking to Saul and saying, you know, listen, like David's been a faithful servant. Pe people like David. And, and so why are you trying to come after him? He's never tried to harm you. Saul, spear in hand, launches a spear not at David, but at his own son, Jonathan. And Jonathan narrowly escapes his life for his life. And then he tells David, listen, you got to run because Saul, my, my dad Saul is coming after you. Why do we keep mentioning this idea that we see the spear in hand? It's because the spear in hand reveals, it's, it's part of his kingship, um, but it also reveals something important about him. See, Saul is someone in 1 Samuel 13 that the reason he loses the, the, the kingship of Israel is because he disobeys an order from the Lord through Samuel, the prophet. Samuel says, wait seven days, and then I will come, and I will present this sacrifice to bless you as you go into battle. Seven days pass, and we see this in 1 Samuel 13, where all of a sudden, Saul's getting anxious. He sees the men are starting to get jittery and scared, and he doesn't want to lose the men. It says they're quaking in fear. He doesn't want to lose the men, and they start to scatter. So Saul calls the, the sacrifice over. He sacrifices. It breaks what God had commanded him to do. And up walks Samuel right at that moment. Worst timing, right? 
And Samuel says, you know, you've lost, you, you're going to lose the kingdom because you've disobeyed the Lord. And we start to see a pattern then that we see that Saul's choices, the bad choices he makes, are often surrounded upon or around the anxiety of what other people are thinking. The people start to scatter. They start to be afraid. He says, I need to do something. As a leader, managing leadership anxiety, there are times when you just think you have to do something even when you don't know what you're going to do. And before you say, yeah, but you know, you're, I'm not a leader in my workplace or whatever. I'm, I, you know, I'm someone who works. I don't, I don't supervise. Friends, leadership is not just a position that you have in a hierarchical structure. Leadership is the impact and the influence you have on those around you. So all of you are leaders Maybe to different capacities, in different realms, in different spheres, but all of you lead. And so all of you have that ability to impact and influence those that God has put around you. Which is so much why we spent the time in the five thresholds this past uh, several months in order to say you have an ability to impact the people around you. Lead them through the thresholds towards Christ. And so it's Saul in 1 Samuel 13. When they start to leave, he, he gets saying, I have to do something disobeys God. Then later we see how in 1 Samuel 18, um, it talks about how the reason he got mad is because after the victory against the Philistines, some of the women were singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden, a spark of jealousy of what other people were thinking. They're thinking, David's coming after my throne. David is more well-loved than me. David is getting the credit I should get. And there becomes this anxiety that stirs up of what other people are thinking and how that makes him act. So after sharing what I shared about the struggle of wanting people to like me or, or that people-pleasing dynamic of my life, can you connect the dots as to why maybe I'm a little bit more understanding of where Saul comes from than I was a week ago? Because I could see how that desire to just do something, to not have people upset, not have people mad, not have people leave me, and to get the credit I think I deserve. You know, we, when we do those things, anxiety makes us make poor choices. It clouds our judgment, and it separates us from God. Here's a little bit more of the story. Again, I'm not going to read the entire situation. He, he takes the next few moments calling his, his royal supervisors, the, the, who are Benjamites like him, and he was saying, listen, if you support David, you know, he's not going to help you get land. He's not going to support you the way I do. Spear in hand, feeling anxious, holding on to his kingship as tightly as he can and holding on to the opinions of others as tightly as he can. And yet he gets to this point where then starting in verse 9 or starting in verse 8, he talks about how you guys knew that David created a covenant with my son Jonathan. None of you told me. You're all conspiring against me. You're all against me. I'm all alone. And since you've rejected me, I'm going to reject you. Again, this anxiety that's coming underneath his, his uh, backstory. Then verse 9 talks about Bodoeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitob at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, the reason that's important is that Ahimelech was the high priest. And so he 
If he were to pray for or, or support David in such a clear way as that, it would be a direct sign of rebellion against King Saul. Doeg, the Edomite, is, is, is an, he, he's no good, right? He's just someone who's evil, uh, he's bad. And he saw the previous chapter how the priests helped David and his men, but there's no evidence in the scripture that, that Ahimelech actually prayed for and, and did this and betrayed Saul for David. He helped him. He gave him food. He gave him the sword of Goliath. He did these things to help, but he never broke his promise or his, his um, he never broke into rebellion against Saul. And so all of a sudden we see how they go back and forth and verse, jumping down to verse 13, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? And Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? This is very similar to what Jonathan said. The king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. He continues on, was this the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. He's saying, I didn't betray you. I didn't do this. This is all in your head because you're feeling anxious that people aren't approving you. So now you're just rejecting people who've been on your side. But the king said, verse 16, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. And he commands all of the priests at Nob to be killed. The Israelites who are God-fearing that follow him won't do it because they know that the priests are set apart. But Doeg the Edomite has no issues with that, kills all the priests, kills the families, kills those in the city of Nob. And so here's what happens. When there's anxiety, when we get clouded judgment, when we don't get what we think we want, how do we respond? When Saul wasn't getting the approval of people, he tried to kill his top servant, he tried to kill his son, and he had all his priests and the city members of that city killed. How do we respond? How do you and I respond when we don't get what we want, whether it's approval, um, possessions, popularity, performance, whatever that fill-in-the-gap is for you? Because here's the cycle of anxiety. I'm just going to share about this in the few moments we have remaining together. The cycle of anxiety, and I got this from Craig Groeschel. He has a sermon series from 2019 called Anxious for Nothing. Um, if you experience anxiety, he shared his story of experiencing anxiety. Um, and so I would encourage you to check that out. It's, it's well worth your time. But one of the, a few of the slides he shares here about the cycle of anxiety. And it starts off at the very beginning, we feel anxious. If we Look at what Steve Cuss says. It means we're feeling anxious about not getting something that we think we need to be okay. Then what happens after we feel anxious is that we often try to control it. We attempt to control that anxious feeling. So if we're anxious about what other people think of us, then we're saying, well, we're going we're gonna to force them to like us. We're going we're gonna to control so that they'll never know anything bad or they'll never think negatively of me, which again, it's impossible to do. If we think, I need to be the best in my class, maybe it means, okay, well, I'm going to study extra hard, and you know what? Maybe I'm going to, if we're not careful, I'm going to break integrity and cheat in order to get the best grade. I'm attempting to control this because I think I need approval or performance or, again, whatever that blank is for you. I need that to be okay, to be loved, to be lovable. Therefore, I'm going to attempt to control this anxiety. I'm going to fix this, fix that person, work on that. 
Then the problem is, is if we do that, then we start to fear what it means to lose, or fear that we would lose control. Then we start to think, oh my gosh, what if this doesn't work? What if I can't control this? What if it's going to go beyond that and I'm losing control, which then causes us to what? Try to control again and continue that cycle. Where it's like, okay, now I'm going to control even harder. I'm going to squeeze even um, more difficultly and make it happen. And then, which causes us eventually to feel more anxious. And then the cycle continues. Anxious feeling, attempt to control, fear of loss of control, more anxious feel, or excuse me, more attempt to control, and then more anxious feeling. It just goes again and again and again. So friends, all of us struggle with something that we fill in the blank. I don't know what yours is. I've shared a few of mine. Maybe yours align very closely with mine. Maybe they don't. But we all have something. We all have something. And so why is anxiety an enemy of the faith? Why, you know, why are we talking about it in a, in a three-week monster series? Why are we spending time specifically on anxiety? Well, Steve Cuss says it this way. He says, anxiety shrinks the power of the gospel because it presents a false gospel, one of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. See, in that cycle we just saw, we think if we could control how, what other people think, or if we can control things, if I can rely on myself to be okay, then I won't need anybody else. And in the culture we live in, a culture in which we have things at our fingertips that are on demand, we like things immediately, we like to, uh, we celebrate the stories, which are wonderful stories, we celebrate the stories of the American dream from, from rags to riches, someone who created their own narrative, and they, they did what they needed to do, and by, the, by the, um, their bootstraps, they picked themselves up and made something of themselves. In that culture, the underlying theme, or one of them at least, is the emphasis on self-reliance. It's, I did this. People want credit for what they did, which, yes, the hard work is there. The, the dedication, the perseverance is there. But as Deuteronomy talks about, who's the one that gave us the gifts that we could use in the first place? So God created us, as my old pastor would say, we like to celebrate the self-made man or the self-made woman, and then, we, and then he would retort with, well, which part of yourself did you actually make? You didn't. You use the gifts God has given you, and you made something. That's awesome. But if we have self-reliance more than reliance on God, that's a false gospel. It makes us think we need Jesus and something else, or it makes us think we, need, we don't really need Jesus because we need that something else. He continues this way about why it's an enemy of faith. He says, I think anxiety is actually a spiritual warfare force that competes for the space where God resides. Hear this. I think it's very, very hard for us to be present to our anxiety and to God at the same time. I think God can be present to us. God can do whatever God wants. But for our ability to be aware of, his, of God's presence, I think anxiety blocks it. I won't go into a ton of details, but there's been um, some dynamics in my personal life uh, with extended family, not my, not my nuclear family, but extended family that have been really tough um, over the, this year. And I remember times when I would struggle with not sleeping well and, and, and being anxious and not eating well and just not knowing how to navigate it. And 
the Lord is good because the sermon series that we were uh, discussing during this time of difficulty was called When God Doesn't from the book of Habakkuk. And so I'm like, oh, Lord, it's like you're preaching to me. And so recognizing that it's still, there's still difficulties there, but it's acknowledging that in those times, the, the voice that rang loudest in my heart and my ear was, you have to figure this out. You have to make this work. You have to do this. You have to think that. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? And then that happens. And then that circles back to how this is going to happen. Rather than the voice that says, be still and know that I am God. Rather than the voice that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. It wasn't the voice that says, I will hem you in before and behind. And when David cries out, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you are there. Even in the darkness, you are there, Lord, because darkness is as light to you. I wish I could say that was the first voice that came to my mind. But that space in which I'm processing, praying, and thinking through things, that space will either be filled with anxiety or it can be filled with God and his word, his Holy Spirit, and the, the wisdom that comes from being in a part of a community with him and with others. It's, they're pretty mutually exclusive. So when you experience anxiety, which voice rings loudest? Is it the difficulty around us, or is it God? And as I've shared, I wish I could always say it's this, but often it's this, and then God leads me to this, which, friends, is sometimes could be one reason why difficulties last a long time. Because God's trying to strip away what we run to normally instead of him until we get to the point of running to him. So as we close, I want to give you a couple practical ideas. How do we respond when we start to feel anxious? And again, this is for, there's this low, this, this state, not necessarily the trait, but the state of anxiety. How do we feel? How do we respond when we do that? The first one, Steve Cuss talks about notice anxiety physiologically. And here's what he does. If you're someone who likes to take notes, I don't have it on here, but there's three different ways that we often will talk about, it, and I alluded to them all earlier. The first way that we often have a, a signal that anxiety is coming is that we have one option is a spinning mind. Our mind starts to spin out of control. Well, what about this? And then what about that? And then what about this? And what about that? And all of a sudden, we're, we're spinning off in these directions. And here's, the, here's one of the dangers of worry and anxiety is that we worry about things that 90% of the time never happen, but it takes up 90% of our peace and our joy. And we say, oh, I know God is good, and I know that to be true, but, but I'm really anxious. And then we worry about things that never end up occurring. So one thing is a spinning mind. Another one for some of us is a racing heart. When you know you're about to have a conflict conversation with someone at work or a child or a spouse or whoever, your heart just starts pounding. And you feel like it's hard to breathe. It's a racing heart. And it's tough to navigate that. That's one sign as well. The third sign is what he calls a tightening gut. And that's like when you just feel it in your gut, like, oh, like it just, it just sinks. It's just tightened. 
But he does say that that could kind of go for um, other physiological things as well. So it could be uh, you start to get headaches in the back of your head. It could be a clenched jaw because you're just, you're, you're so stressed that your, your jaw starts to hurt because you're clenching so tightly. So the first thing is to notice your anxiety. And he talks about how this is like, it's just a sign. It's a, it's a warning light that something's going on. That when in our forerunner a little while ago, we got a check engine light. We went, we, went to, we wanted to get it checked out um, and it was fine and no big deal. And then we got our oil changed not too long ago and then a maintenance light showed up. And Steph looked up like what the maintenance light meant. And it's like, oh, it's, it's just one of those things where um, when they checked the oil, they probably didn't reset it. And so that's usually what it means. And so that maintenance light has been sitting there for um, longer than I'd like to admit to you all. Um, but it's just that idea of, How did I respond differently? Well, if it's an extreme anxiety or extreme situations, a check engine light, okay, we got to figure out what's going on because we don't want to damage our car. When it's a low level, it's a maintenance light that we think just means that the oil sensor didn't get rechecked, it's really easy to let that linger too long. So when you start to see the warning light, a maintenance light, a check engine light, That can show itself up in your life when you think about a situation and there's a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. The next thing that we do after that is we name the anxiety. We we talk about what it is. That when I've been struggling with stuff recently, it's I am anxious that people in my family are going to be mad at me and I hate conflict. And why can't we all just be Leonardo and get along? It's recognizing that there are specific things. It's like, I'm feeling anxious because I don't like that people are mad at me. This past year, I'm feeling anxious because I know whatever decision I make, there will be people who are upset. And there'll be people who are happy. And that tension is hard. It's naming the anxiety that if I don't do well enough in this, I'm feeling like I'm only valuable if I'm perfect. And I'm inevitably not. And so if that's my equation, perfection equals value, I will never feel loved. So it's naming it specifically. And then, uh, as we see here in Philippians 4, and I'll just I'll read the, the, it on the screen. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And that idea of present your request, Craig Rochelle talks about how it's, it's not like a formal invitation. It's like, I present this to you, like on a platter, right? Like it's, it's this idea of just let your anxiety, your anxious thoughts, let them be known. Just let God know about them. Name them and let God know you're struggling. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice how it doesn't say the peace of man, the peace of self-reliance, the peace of your own ability. No, no, the peace of God transcends understanding. And it doesn't just comfort you. It guards you. It guards your heart and your mind against the space where anxiety wants to come in and tear you down and separate you from the Lord. So those, number one, we notice anxiety physiologically. Number two, we look at um, naming what it is. And then number three in our list, and this is the final point, is dying to that anxiety. It's saying, God, I know I don't have to hold on to this. In fact, I'm going to skip forward to a couple of slides. Uh, there's a prayer that, that Steve Cuss talks about that he prays all the time. And he says, Jesus died 
So I don't have to, and then whatever you fill in the blank with, anymore. It's saying, me, Jesus died so I don't have to feel perfect anymore. Because even in my imperfections and in my mistakes, my value is found in what Jesus did for me and in my foundation in him. No matter how bad my mistakes are or how imperfect I can be, my value is unchanging because the check of Christ's blood and life, death, and resurrection has already cleared and the payment's already been made. I don't lose value when I'm in Christ. Or Jesus died so I don't have to feel like everyone has to love me because the one who matters most already does. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. It's unconditional because it's not conditioned on how you respond this week or how you're living. It's contingent upon Christ's love, which is unfailing, unchanging, and far greater than we could ever imagine. So friends, this is just the first week And I recognize that anxiety is a heavy topic. If you are one of those who are really struggling right now in this moment, please don't hesitate to come and ask for prayer. I would love to pray with you. You If you don't don't feel comfortable coming up to me to share about it, I completely understand that as well. And you could fill out one of the prayer cards uh, in the seat back in front of you. Let us know so we could come alongside you. But as you leave, because inevitably, not even this week, later today, you will have an experience where like, my mind's starting to spin my heart's starting to race, or I'm starting to feel tightening in my gut. God, what is it that I'm anxious about? What am I clinching onto? What's that spear that causes damage, and how is this going to impact those around me? Instead, God, I name, I'm anxious about this, and I die to it, because Jesus, you already died and rose again, so I don't have to live under the shadow of anxiety, but instead I could live in the light and the hope and the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his unchanging, undying, unconditional love for me and for you. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you for meeting us in the midst of a topic that can be hard to talk about. It can also be something that isn't just talked about much in the church or or around us. And God, may we know that when... May I confess, when I look at people like King Saul in the Bible and I say, oh, what a horrible person. How could he make those decisions? And Lord, I thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit that opens up my eyes to see how I can have the same root causes or the same struggles as others. And so may I not judge other people's um, actions while forgiving my motives that are the exact same, come from the same place. But Lord, instead, may I, may we, Die to that which we think we need most that will fill in the blank for us and realize that only you can fill in the gaps of our lives. So Lord, may you speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each of us for the rest of the service, during worship, and the rest of our day. And May we allow you the space in our lives and eliminate anxiety and pray through it and surrender it to you so that we can experience your presence more closely and fight the enemy of anxiety. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. 
We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, we're prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.